If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. International Horse College's motto is people safety and horse welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered Training Organisation number 31352. Today's guest is Heather Moffat. Heather's a international trainer and she specialises in teaching the classical seat. Now she's pioneered the teaching of riding through the use of an equine movement simulator machine and we'll talk about that within the interview. Mm. How are you today, Heather? I'm fine, thanks, uh, Glenys, apart from the awful weather here in England. So we're still <laughs> suffering from the effects of this storm. Eleanor, I think this one's name is. So we might get a few problems on the line <laughs> from what I can hear. So anyway, but nice to be talking to you. Uh, it, look, it's lovely here. We've had another wonderful day here in sunny Queensland. So, um, you know, I've been to England. I know know what the weather's like. Uh, we could do with some of your Australian sun here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Heather, we normally start off with a favourite quote, which could be a quote that you use that's inspired you or it also could be a quote that you use when you're teaching. Have you got one for us? Yes, Absolutely. It's actually a strapline on my website, Enlightened Equitation, and it's by an Indian guru called Prem Rawat, who is very much a philosopher. The actual quote is, simplicity is the key to understanding. And that is something that I very much have always used in my teaching. And it was just such a good quote. It's so simple in itself and says what it does on the tin. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's my favorite quote. Simplicity is the key to understanding. I think that's well explained as well and something that people can take away and just be thinking yeah. about. Yep. Heather, how did you start with horses? Well, I'm happy to talk about that very much so. Um, as a child, my father actually had a little driving pony, but a very small child. I showed no interest in it. And I was my, my mother was a classical pianist and organist, and I started to play the piano when I was only three years old. I had something called perfect pitch. So my parents then, my mother taught me until I was seven. And there were two music schools in the town, the nearest town to us. And she actually, or they sent me to one that passed a friend's stables. It wasn't actually a riding school, but he, he was an older man and kept horses as a hobby and whatnot. And he asked me if I'd like to learn to ride. And that was it, basically. I mean, I still played the piano, but I had to be practically forced to practice instead of being out with horses. And so from, that was how, you know, I, I often wonder if I'd been sent to the other music school, what sort of path my life would have taken. But that's how I started anyway. I initially learned on friends' ponies and, and also went to a little riding school and then had my own horse later and took it from there. Okay. And, and what made you decide to have a career with horses? Was it when you were at the Friends Stables or when you started at a riding school or a bit later on? No, what? It was later. I was really on course for a scientific career, actually. But then a friend of mine, a friend of the family, asked me to teach her little boy to ride. You see, and I had a, a 12-2 Exmoor pony as well, keep my own other horse company. And so uh, I started to teach this little guy to ride. And I realized that, I mean, I was 15 years old, and I realized that I was 
managing to teach him far quicker than I would see anybody at the local riding school. I also went to actually try a show jumper and the then chairman of the British Show Jumping Association's wife was there to actually try a horse as well. And she watched me ride and she asked my father how I'd learned to sit the canter so quietly. And so she actually said, oh, my father said, well, she watches cowboy films, which was true. Because I used to think that cowboys, although they weren't perhaps the most elegant riders in the cowboy films and things, they seemed to be glued to the saddle rather more than I was. And I started to evaluate what they were doing with their lower back and pelvis in order to absorb the movement. And of course, then went and experimented on my own horse and found that I could sit a lot more still in canter than virtually anybody that I knew. And so uh, Mrs. Bates, the wife of the chairman of the Show Jumping Association, was the first adult that I ever gave a lesson to because she then asked me there and then if I could help her with her canter. And I suddenly thought, you know, this is my career. From then on, it was that. But again, I was... I went to do my British Tour Society exams, not actually going away. I was going to a, a big equestrian centre on a, on a weekly basis. But I was not allowed to teach this use of the lower back and the pelvis, which is what had given me the advantage to be able to sit the movement, both in sitting trot and canter as it happened. And I refused to do my BHS exams at the time as a result of it because I felt that I was being held back in how I could actually improve my teaching so that I took the route sort of training with continental instructor trainers, I should say, rather than instructors. And here I am today, and yet I've actually been county chairman in Devon of the British Horse Society, um, and I'm still on the county committee, but it means that I can fight from within. And that's what I've been doing for about the last 40 years. So, <laughs> so I hope that explains it a bit. It does, it does, yeah. And interesting that even as a 15-year-old that you had dissected and thought enough about the rider to be able to work out the use of the lower back and yep. the pelvis within the canter. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was a sort of horrible target, but my toys to bits to find out how they worked, and I pretty much did the same with riding. And, you know, to me, this when you go to a typical riding school and you hear the instructor saying, sit deeper, relax your lower back, go with the movement, follow the movement. Well, usually if you're following something, you're behind it, so that's even more stupid. And I thought, well, this means nothing to a beginner rider. You know, sit deeper. How do you sit deeper? More often than not, they get stiff and then just crush themselves down into the saddle, relax your lower back, and then they go floppy like a jelly on a plate. And so what I did was to analyze and evaluate the exact movements the rider was making with the lower back and the pelvis. And it's so simple. Basically, the movement that you're making in, in walk is the same as your pelvis makes when you walk on foot. In sitting trot, the movement is the same with the lower back and the pelvis as you make when you're actually running on foot. In canter, the movement is the same as when you skip on foot. And I can prove this time and time again. I mean, you'll see on if you go onto YouTube on some of my channels that my saddler, who because I also design and manufacture saddles, and my saddler, who I worked with, worked with in, in India for the lower range of saddles, he'd never ridden a horse in his life. He was 26 years old. And I put him on the simulator for two very short lessons, and then on one of my Lusitanos on the lunch. You would never believe this guy's never been on a horse before. And we do that time and again. Mm -hmm. And it's all because people are told precisely what to do with the lower back and the pelvis. 
And once they establish that, then the rest of the rider is, is easy to work with. But again, the other thing is that nine times out of ten, the saddle is the problem because the stirrup bars are too far forward on the saddle. It pulls the rider out of alignment and then they can't maintain the shoulder hip heel line. So, you know, again, this was why I went down the route of designing my own saddles to make a saddle that allowed the rider to sit in the correct ear, shoulder, hip, heel line, even as a beginner, without having to fight the tool that is supposed to be assisting them. Okay, yeah, I think you've certainly taken that to heart and, um, you know, not only dissected the walking, the running and the skipping, but designing your own saddles to yep. help with that as well. I think that uh, shows yep, a lot of commitment. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Now, for people who are thinking about having a uh, a career with horses, what sort of core skills do you think that they need? Uh, enthusiasm and passion, for a start. Something that people say, even at 64 years of age, I've never lost, and I think if I did, I would give up. They have to have a good eye so that they can actually observe and to be able to correct in particular, and to actually like people as well. Because that's very important. I see so many instructors that bellow and rant and rave at, in, at pupils. It's a bit like the Brits shouting at foreigners in the hope they'll understand, you know, because we're all too damn lazy to learn another language. And so, you know, for me, those are the first prerequisites. Even if they're not great riders, sometimes you can have somebody who is a great rider who is a really useless instructor or trainer, and you'll have somebody who's not such a good rider who's actually got a very good eye and can solve problems for riders that others wouldn't. So that is probably the most important thing. And also, don't think you're going to make any money out of it. <laughs> That's <laughs> the other thing. So the eye to, you know, observe and correct, uh, that's something that's developed? Do you think that people have got mm. to have that eye right from the start, or is it something that can be developed? No, it can be developed, definitely. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, it helps, obviously, but, you know, it, the most important thing is, for instance, we run our own teacher training courses, the Enlightened Equitation Teacher Training Courses. So what I actually do is we get lots of different guinea pig horses and riders each week, the training week module that we do. And I then correct all the problems initially. And so they all learn to actually sort of um, watch me and watch me teaching. And I will explain the, the fault that I'm actually correcting. And by the end of the first five-day module, they're all starting to sing from the same hymn sheet and looking at writers very differently because they've had these faults pointed out. And more often than not, it can be one fault, for instance, that's setting off a whole chain reaction of others. And so if they're taught to learn to isolate that particular fault and correct it, more often than not, it will literally correct all the others in one fell swoop. And so, you know, yes, you can develop the eye, but it's very, very important that the way that somebody's taught that they can develop the eye because more often than not, if they're just taught sit deeper, relax the lower back, go with the movement, and they're trotting it out like a parrot, it's never going to actually improve their teaching skills. Yeah, yeah, and I think they've got to have the enthusiasm and the passion to want to develop the eye to observe and connect. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And the other thing too is that quote that I've said, uh, the uh, simplicity is the key to understanding. What we try to do is to make it as simple as possible because you get some trainers and instructors who going depth into biomechanics and everything to the, to the student. The average student doesn't want to do that. They want something simple they can put into practice very simply. You know, when people use far too many analogies and images and things like that, it actually muddies the waters for them. If you can give them a very quick, direct correction, 
that they can implement immediately. And that then builds up over a period that it, it, it changes the body's proprioception so they do it automatically. Then that is very important. So it's, it's about keeping things simple. And then it makes it easier to teach as well because, you know, the, the actual teacher is taking on board something that they can actually see tangible results almost instantly. So that's the thing. It's, it's having the mindset they don't want to complicate things as well is another thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And what about people who've influenced you? Uh, right. Okay. Nuno Oliveira was absolutely my main influence. Mm-hmm. I saw him when I was 13 at the Horse of the Year show when he was over here. And I knew that was how I wanted to ride. But I couldn't find anybody here in the UK that could teach me the methods that he did. And then we had a Belgian trainer called Captain Desi Laurent, who moved here from France, in actual fact. And he came to Devon, and I actually lived on the Essex-Suffolk borders at the time, but my parents had moved to Devon some years before. And so I remember phoning Desi and asking him, you know, if I could have some dressage lessons when I was down here staying with my parents. And he sort of bit my head off and said, I do not teach the dressage, you teach, I teach the classical equitation. <laughs> okay, I'll have some of that then. And he had trained with Nuno Oliveira. So I knew that he was probably going to be the one who could teach me rather more than anybody else. So I came to see Desi. He lived right up on top of Dartmoor in a place that he called uh, La Guerinia Equestrian Centre. And my father and I, sort of my mother and I, drove up there with the rocks on the track taking out the bottom of my father's car practically. And then reached the top and walked into this barn. It looked like an ordinary common or garden barn from the outside. It was 30 feet wide and 90 feet long, which is the size actually of the Duke of Newcastle's indoor school at Bolsover Castle here in England. And it was like, I honestly, I had to pinch myself because the walls were all painted white. And then you had the engravings from the Duke of Newcastle's book all along the walls on either side. A large crystal chandelier either end of the, this little sort of barn. And it was like I pinched myself because I was thinking I was dreaming. You know, you're right up on top of Dartmoor in the wilds of Devon. Mm. And you've you just stepped into this little Baroque palace practically. It looks like a barn from the outside. So he put me on this horse on the lunge and on a 30 feet wide circle. And no reins, no stirrups. And the horse just took off with me. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to come off. And the walls <laughs> at the bottom were concrete block. And I was thinking, you know, I mean, the sheer centrifugal force on a 10-meter circle, you know, um, when you've no reins, no stirrups or anything on a horse you've never sat on in your life. And so he kept yelling at me, don't grip, don't grip. <laughs> I thought, well, if I don't grip, I'm going to come off. Well, eventually the horse stopped. And then he taught me a couple of things that at the time didn't make sense. One was not to turn my shoulders to the inside, but to advance the inside hip. The difference it made was absolutely phenomenal. Over that next two days when I rode with him, I could see how it all worked. It was more the age than anything else. I mean, I'd already got a pretty good seat. Okay, he corrected my overall position because I'd been riding quite a few young horses. And so I was probably in a bit more of a defensive position, if you know what I mean. But he got me sitting in the classical position very quickly. And when I went home, I mean, at the time we had my late husband and I had an equestrian centre with 28 horses. Probably at that time I could ride, you know, even a 13-2 pony. I was light enough up to, you know, whatever size um, my advanced medium dressage horse. 
And I went home thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to retrain all these horses, these aides. And I got on every horse and pony that was big enough or small enough for me to ride over the next two days. And every last horse responded to those aids. Every last horse and pony. Well. And I just couldn't believe it. It was like they all said, thank God she's learned at last. Mm. And I'm still teaching those aids to this day. And it's why I go to lecture demonstrations or wherever. For instance, Sydney Olympic Centre in 2006, I did a two-day seminar there. I will get on a horse in that arena that I have never sat on in my life before. I am confident that horse will respond to those aids immediately. I've never yet, and that is 30 years ago, I've never yet had a horse that didn't. <laughs> and so he was my greatest influence. He wasn't a great horse trainer, in all honesty, I feel, but he was. it was the actual riding side of things. Although I'd already taught myself this use of the lower back and the pelvis, which to me is the essence of every seat, because it completely renders the rider independent of the reins. But it was the refinement of the aids, particularly the hands, that, that Desi taught me that I'm forever indebted to him. Then I had was very lucky to meet a lovely lady called Dr. Margaret Cox, who had actually grown up in Germany. She's English, but had grown up in Germany after the war. She went to boarding school in northern Germany and was taught by the riding instructors. There were ex-writers of the Spanish riding school. So she was very strictly German-based classical training, whereas Desi was much more French-Portuguese. And so I had the opportunity then to learn the German system with her. And ultimately, we then went together to Luis Valenza in Portugal at the behest of an American friend of mine whom I'd met when I was lecturing and demonstrating at the Equitana in Kentucky. And so we then went to Luis for about 10 years after that, as often as we could get over to Portugal. And, of course, riding his wonderful schoolmasters at the Centro Equestro Lazeria Grande, his place. And then he put me on some of the younger horses. I had a young Lusitano that I bought and kept with him. I also then had a Dutch partner, actually, who lived in Portugal. And when we kept his house when he moved to England, and we were going back with the fours quite a lot. So three people, if you like, have drastically, well, four, um, obviously Nuno and Desi Laurent and then Margaret Cox and then Louise Valencia, um, Nuno's cousin. So, so, yeah, they say when you need the teacher, the right teacher, he will appear, and he or she did. I was just going to say that even when you went to that, I suppose, palace, the hidden palace there in the, you know, right up on top of the Dartmoor Mountain, you know, at the time you said yeah. it didn't make sense, but it was only oh. a couple of days then that you thought, right, this is it, but that's right, when the pupil's ready, yeah. the master appears. Yeah. Yep, yep. All right, now what about horses who have influenced yeah. you? Uh, horses have influenced me. Well, obviously, having had a big equestrian centre, you know, we had a lot of horses. The trouble is, I suppose, I've, I've got sort of several favourites and horses that have taught me a lot over the last 47 years of my teaching career. One in particular, Nipper, who was my big Hanoverian cross thoroughbred. He was the one I said had string halt, and I bought him very cheaply because of it. And he was the one, you know, sort of in my late teens that I experimented with because he'd already learned all the lateral work, etc. And I knew that what I was doing wasn't necessarily always right. And I went to Desi, I think I was 28, I think, when I first went to Desi Laurent. And what I found with Nipper when I went back to ride him after I'd been to Desi's I'd also watched Desi, um, and again, this all comes from my analytical brain. I watched Desi when he was riding the lateral work on his horses that two days, 
And I was particularly noticing how he positioned his body for the lateral work, which is I'm teaching this day too. I went home and I copied the positioning of his body as much as anything else. And all of a sudden I had extremely good lateral work. So Nipper taught me, I was lucky I had a horse, I could go home and practice that on. And of course, after that, I taught all the rest of the horses in the school. <laughs> but from then, I think probably one of the ones that's influenced me the most was an ex-racehorse that I bought at the time he was about to be put down. He was nine years old, 16-3. He was actually 15-16 thoroughbred. And he'd then gone eventing after he'd finished his racing career. And he was bred by two nice ladies in their late 50s who bred thoroughbreds for racing. And I got to hear about him by default. Literally, it was a, a friend of mine, a trainer friend of mine, told me about him and said that I might be able to get him because he thought he'd make a very good dressage horse, but point him at a fence and he would rear and go over backwards. And he'd been evented with his pelvis out of place and in pain, and so he associated jumping with pain. So anyway, I rang the owners, and they were actually on the phone. They were engaged at the time. And... I managed to get hold of them afterwards and they had just arranged for the knacker to come and put him down the next day. And so I pleaded with them. I said, please, please, please don't. I said, he's only nine years old. I said, come over and see us and see if you like our place. I mean, we had a nice big equestrian centre and indoor school and everything. So they came over that afternoon. They liked the place. So I went over the next day and tried him over there at their place, um, Ingerstone in Essex, and brought him home. I had him on a month's trial. And I promised my trainer friend who had originally told me about him that I would never jump him, but I did actually have my fingers crossed behind my back <laughs> at the same time. And so anyway, I, I just let him settle in. And I'd soon discovered that if you took him out for a hack by himself, that's when he would also have gone up and reared and he would have gone over backwards quite definitely. And so he taught me more about non-confrontational training of horses than any other horse that I can think of because I thought, well, how am I going to solve this? So he was fine out hacking with another horse, but if I took him out on his own, I could sense immediately, if I put my legs on him instead of the road junction, he would have gone up. So I said to him, right, mate, if you've got half an hour, so have I. And I just sat there. And so after about five minutes, he'd think, well, this is boring. And then he'd start to move, and I'd point him in the right direction and make a big fuss of him for having done so. Six weeks of that, you know, he never reared again. And I then started to pop him over little jumps in the indoor school. And he was absolutely fine. And so this trainer friend of mine came to do a jumping lesson one night. He told me to take him out halfway through because he was going to do flat work to start off with and then do some grid work. So he put grid up and he said, right, take Butch out now. So I did, but took him down the line of fences. And Mike's jaw nearly hit the floor and the air was blue as well afterwards for me having promised not to jump him and obviously had been but you know I had that horse until he died here at age 28 he never once reared again you know so he taught me a huge amount and he became one of my best schoolmaster horses here and I paid 400 pounds meat money for him basically just as a token to the uh, to the owners and we kept in touch literally until he died so uh, so, yeah, he was one of my other greatest influences. I think probably one of my other greatest influences was my first Iberian horse I bought. He was a Hispano-Arab, and I bought him actually from Daniel Pinto, the uh, Portuguese Grand Prix rider. And Fanta was just the most... Um, he should have been a dog, not a horse. He was so intelligent. We taught him tricks and all sorts of things. 
So, yeah, he was a great influence. Sadly, we lost him with colic when he was only 17 on the operating table, and that was a huge blow. But I would say that they're the three, probably the biggest influences in horses in my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that when you took the horse, you know, down through the grids after they said not to jump him, and you'd obviously been jumping him and he'd stopped rearing and everything, I'm sure that was a proud moment. Was that your proudest? Yeah, it was one of them. It was there were quite a lot of highlights I can think about, and particularly as much as anything too with students when they've come through things and got them through the other side. And I think that's even my most recent working student, Laura, you know, watching her ride at the end of five months here from being, and she would be the first to admit that she was an absolutely appalling rider, even though she'd had three years at college. And the difference in her riding, I mean, she just does not look like the same rider at all. And, you know, she was very, very down in confidence because her previous boss had really shattered her confidence and told her to have her very difficult mare put down. And um, seeing her beaming face at the end of that period when the mare's doing beautiful lateral work and everything, yes, those sort of things are my proudest moments, really, I think. Being able to help a really talented young rider like that who'd been chucked on the scrap heap as much as anything else told she was useless. (laughs) All right. Heather, what I'd like you to do now is think about giving someone a lesson, you know, relating the riding to the walking, running and skipping. Mm -hmm. You know, say someone's come to you Mm. for a lesson and they say, look, I just can't get Mm -hmm. the sitting trot, particularly the sitting trot and the canter, but, you know, I'm sure you could improve the walk as well. What sort of things would you be telling them to improve their sitting trot and their canter? Okay, well, it's quite a moot point, actually, at the moment, because my new working student, Bridget, has just started yesterday. She's in her mid-30s. She's one of our unlike degradation teachers, actually, and one of Kelly Marks' recommended trainers as well. But in her case, she'd never been able to feel the diagonal on the right rein. And normally, this comes from an inability to sit to the trot correctly, because what happens with most people is that in sitting trot, they're just taught, as I said, sit deeper, relax your lower back, go with the movement. Nobody actually explains the fact that you've got two halves to your backside. And if the two halves are not working in sync with the two halves of the horse's back, then A, you won't be able to feel what's going on underneath. You won't be able to feel which hind leg's coming under, which hind leg's striking on the ground, but the shoulder's coming back and the shoulder's going forward. The split second that you can start to actually absorb the movement through correct flexion of the lower back, a very small controlled flexion, and from allowing the two sides of the pelvis, in other words, the feet bones, will rise and fall separately with the two sides of the horse's back. That Then the lower leg stays still also because the lower leg just adheres lightly to the swing of the belly. And that is the biggest secret, is actually making the fact that if you have two halves to your butt, the horse has two halves to his back. You put two and two together in sync, you make one. You put two and two together out, think you make a mess. And that's what most people are doing because they've never been taught the difference. And it also is the cause of the nodding head that you see in dressage riders because the rider is absorbing the movement through the neck and the shoulders instead of the lower back. Also, it's the cause of the hands chopping up and down in sitting trot. The minute that the rider starts to get the absorption of the movement correct through this small controlled flexion of the lower back, and the pelvis being allowed to move with the two halves of the horse's back. So as the hind leg comes under, the seat bone will lower on that side. As the hind leg strikes the ground, it will push the seat bone up and forward and the horse's shoulder forward on that side. And that is how we teach the sitting trot, and it is absolutely invaluable. 
mm-hmm. we can teach it to anybody who's even been doing it for the last 30 years or more. But that is nine times out of ten the reason why people can't feel their diagonals and have to take a sneaky peek down to the outside shoulder or go on the wrong one for a few strides because it feels too comfortable if they're on the, their left favorite yes. diagonal. Yep. And this is with Bridget. She has been trying. She's 40 years old now. She's been trying for the last 30-odd years. Most people go off on the correct diagonal, for instance, on one rein or the other, mm-hmm. and then they, they feel it's you know, sort of too comfortable on the other rein. So that's what she'd been doing for years. So yesterday, it took me 20 minutes to get her rising to the trot on both diagonals with no problem. She actually had tears running down her face at the end of it because she had been trying for so long, and yet it was so simple. But if she had been sitting to the trot incorrectly, I would have had to have sorted that out first. I'd sorted that out the last time she was down here, the sitting trot. So she's sitting to the trot perfectly. But, you know, I can get on any horse anywhere in the world and tell you instantly which hind leg's coming under, which hind leg's striking the ground, which shoulder's going forward, which shoulder's coming back, etc., etc. all by what my seat bones are doing. Mm, mm, mm. There's a fantastic result for your working student. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just fantastic. Oh, just let me interrupt you for a moment, just to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at Online Horse College. Have a look at the flexible options with online theory. The practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. Now, just going the other yeah. way, you've really pioneered this, you know, the whole using the the simulator to help yeah. teach riding and improve riding and everything. What sort of resistance yeah. has there been? Do you know if people just said, oh, yeah, right, well, that makes sense? Or resistance. has, yeah, resistance oh. from people, yeah. Lots and lots and lots of resistance. Mm-hmm. I still get it even now, you know. Sometimes on Facebook, for instance, somebody will ask a question on one of the other sites rather than my own about sitting trot, and I will explain to them, even put the video up, you know, sort of, of somebody doing it badly and then somebody doing it correctly. And even then, you'll get all these other experts who just talk over me and say, no, 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 you're wrong. You don't do it like that. And you think, hang on a minute, I have taught thousands of riders literally in 40 years, 47 years now of teaching. And yet these internet experts have to jump on top of you and say, no, no, you're doing it all wrong. Luckily, these days, I must admit that certainly I have, you know, because I'm I'm at the forefront, too, of the anti-Rolker movement, mm-hmm. have been for many years. And so I feel I'm much more accepted by mainstream dressage people because I think a lot of people think that classical trainers, you know, in the dressage world, they think we're a bunch of cranks. But when they actually see that I know what I'm talking about, then they start to accept you. And look at my Facebook page and the number of Facebook friends of mine who are Grand Prix riders and, uh, you know, sort of list one judges, etc., even FEI judges. And I do feel that at last, it's taken me 47 years, but I do feel this last couple of years I've had more acceptance than resistance. And people are starting to even, uh, I mean, I've actually taught fellows of the British Horse Society now. Mm. You know, I've been British Horse Society County Chairman here in Devon, as I said, because I believe in fighting from within. And I do hope that they will take this very simple teaching on board eventually before I'm just too old to even utter it, you know? (laughs) But I do think it is improving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's courageous of you to go out and do something 
that obviously is going to be so beneficial to the riders and that way benefit the horses, but one yeah. that there is a bit of resistance yeah, from. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now, Heather, is there a book? Um, well, I will obviously recommend my own. <laughs> my own book, In Life Expectation, obviously it's actually available on Kindle as well now in, in three parts. And that is, you know, I mean, quite a few of my colleagues have written several books on the subject. And people ask me, why don't you write more books on the subject? I've no need to. You know, I revised my old book, which was first published in 1998, and Life and I did it, redid it again in 2000, oh God, I can't even remember, 2011, I think it was. But I added an extra 100 pages because of extra things I'd learned and also because we put nearly 500 all-new photographs and with very sort of extensive captions so that people can see and understand what the rider is doing or if they're doing it wrong and then how it's corrected. So you'll get sequences of photos showing you know, the rider doing it wrong and then the rider doing it right. And so, you know, for me, it was only honest of me to say that I'd revised it rather than rewritten it because there was virtually nothing in it that I had to rewrite. I just added to because I felt that I'd still learned more. And so I added that to it. So I don't feel the need to write lots of books because that one book is definitive on, on what I teach. Yep. So that is, you know, a book that I feel I can recommend because I know it works. And I've had hundreds and hundreds of emails and letters from people over the years saying, you know, this is the one book I've read and been able to put into practice. So, yeah, that is obviously a choice. Um, another book that I really love, that's for in-hand work, because I'm a great believer in in-hand work, and I just wish a lot more people would do it. I know Marika de Jong, for instance, has very much popularized it with the straightness training work that she does. But a very good book is Oliver Hilberger, Schooling Exercises in Hand, and I think it is still actually in print. So that's another book that I would very thoroughly recommend. I'm just trying to think, well, obviously, any that you can get a hold of by Nuno Oliveira if you're interested in classical training at you know, sort of higher levels, but also the philosophy of it. Another book that I really loved, and I don't know if it is still in print, and that was by Franz Meringer, who, of course, was in Australia for many years after he left the Spanish Riding School, and that's Horses Are Made to Be Horses. And that was a book that absolutely, I came back actually from, it was the British Dressage Award dinners some years ago and staying with my friend, Dr. Margaret Cox and her husband, I couldn't sleep. And I picked up a book, and so it was a whole bookshelf full of books, and it was Maringo's Horses and Made to Be Horses. And I started to read it and I actually didn't put it down till dawn when I'd finished, <laughs> it. finished it. I didn't get much sleep that night. And I just loved his actual there was one bit in there and he said that, you know, that his wife asked him to wash dishes. And he said, you know, I know how to wash dishes. My wife just has to get me to do them when she wants me to. <laughs> and he said, more or less, that was how he, he said, a horse knows how to, to walk, trot, canter, jump, whatever. I just have to train him to do that, you know, when I want him to. Yes. And, you know, the whole philosophy was very humorous as well and very readable. So, yeah, if that book's still in print, grab it. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's in print. If it is, we'll find a link and um, put that in your notes. But uh, what happened there, Yeah, he went yeah. out and he hadn't quite finished the book when he passed. And a lot of his students used to write yes, notes, you know, because yeah. he, he used to go and do them yeah. during the day. They would write the notes and he went around or his wife went yeah. around then. Story. Yeah. Yeah. And got all the notes. But a few of those people who wrote yeah. the notes, we've actually interviewed on previous podcasts. 
Oh wow! Yeah, it's a really good book, Matt. And uh, you know, as I said, it was it was a joy to read and uh, something I've recommended. It did come back into print for a while. Whether or not it's out of print now, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, those are all books that are full of little gems, really, as well. Another one that I do like is Jean-Claude Racinet's Falling for Fallacies. And I okay. think that is still available. Mm-hmm. And Anja Beran, who is a great favorite of mine in Germany, classical trainer and writer, um, Indifference. I think it maybe has a different name now. The, the original one was called Indifference. And that is a, a lovely, lovely book. All right. Now, Heather, what are you looking forward to at the moment? What does your future hold? Oh, a lot of hassle, really. My father and stepmother both died within three months of each other two years ago, and I'd been left the farm some time before that, but the house is far too big for me. I've had the last two years I've spent completely refurbishing it. Um, was originally going to do bed and breakfast here, but to try and get somebody to do it who was reliable, so I hadn't time or really worked seven days a week. It's just not going to be feasible. So sadly, my home of nearly 30 years, family home, will be up for sale in March. It's you know it's a big house, four double ensuite rooms, my own annex accommodation on the side, and then another big cabin which we used for our parents' carers, etc. So that will be up for sale, and then I'm hoping to get a barn conversion in the yard, but it depends on whether our council is going to play ball, and so that will have to be completely built and well converted. Then I have several other building projects in the yard to do afterwards because once in my life I should actually have some money. So there's an awful lot of work to be done still. I'm hoping I'll still have a bit more time to ride my rising eight-year-old Lusitano, a beautiful big black horse who's given me an awful lot of scares since I bought him as my 60th birthday present to myself from breeder friends in Portugal, 16 to jet black, Luso three-year-old colt at the time. And he has had two major operations since. The first one, the vet that I was using at the time didn't actually diagnose it correctly for six months. It turned out to be a bone chip on his hock, which if you'd have actually scanned the back of the hock as well as the middle of it, he would have discovered it. So he had to have an operation to remove the chip, which should have only taken eight or nine weeks to recover from. But because the bone, roughened bone had been excoriating on the gastrocnemius tendon for, for six months, it was a 15-month rehab period. Mm. And then he managed to, we'd noticed a, a lump forming on the coronet on the right-hand side. We couldn't do anything about having it removed until the rehab period was up. And it turned out to be a massive keratoma, which on MRI scanning it proved, you know, proved that it may not even be removable. And the remarkable vet, Ollie Crowe from B&W Practice in Gloucestershire, came down to our practice because we were a fantastic veterinary hospital and amazingly removed it through the actual coronary band um, or the coronet. And he was back in work after two months. So yeah. we're just praying that uh, at long last, because we had issues with him after gelding as well. So that was the three things. So I hope now that I've actually got a, a beautiful horse there to ride. And I also have a 10-year-old, very beautiful PRE stallion who's in pretty high level now. And once the house is sold, I hope to buy myself another little two-horse box and actually be able to get out and have a bit of fun. That sounds good. Sounds very good. That's the main thing at the moment. Yep. Heather, just summing up your philosophy, would you be able to just sum it all up into a lesson today so people can take it away with them for the rest of the day? Well, I think that for me, the huge importance is to learn how to ride in a way that is not impeding your horse. 
And I think this is the biggest problem is the fact that most people, I will start off a lesson with a new rider, whether they're a, a complete beginner, which I, I don't get the chance to teach many beginners as I'd like to because they're the most important of all. But I always start off, um, particularly if I see anybody kicking the horse or hitting the horse, for instance. So I say to them, have you got a dog? Yeah, yeah, we've got a dog. You kick and hit your dog in the way that you kick and hit your horse. Well, no, cry. I had certainly a child said, well, my dog had run away. Do you not think your horse would if it could? Mm. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons that I promoted. We've got these new equisimulators now that, that one of my teachers in Holland, enlightened equitation teachers in Holland, her father and other half have completely revamped one of my old mechanical ones. And we've now got well, three in Australia now. There's one with Paul Cairns and then Diana Waters, who's one of my very, very good enlightened equitation teachers, has got one. Another lady now is, is buying one. And I'm hoping she'll come over and do some training with it as well because it really is essential to get the benefit from it. But Diana's a very, very good teacher and she's got the enthusiasm to really push it forward. So she's a great one if you can get over to any of you. It's such a long way to go in Australia, that's the problem. <laughs> I was actually in for she, uh, I was going past her place a little while ago, uh, right. last, towards the end of last yeah. year. But And she said, sure, come in, you know, great, stay mm. overnight, do whatever. But she said, I'll be in the UK at the time. So she was over visiting yeah, you, I think. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, she's, well, she's been over for Christmas and uh, we did a CPD day of training, so she also did some extra training on the simulator herself here. But it's just, you know, if, if all riding schools would actually buy these, it saves the horse so much discomfort, you know. And, you know, because if you teach the rider to absorb the movement correctly in the first place, then they don't learn to bounce around on the horse. But, you know, as I said earlier in the interview, the, one of the biggest problems, Glenys, of the lot is the stirrup bars being too far forward on the saddle. The difference it makes when the stirrup leather is hanging perpendicularly underneath the leg so that the rider is not having to hold it back at 25 or 30 degrees all the time. This is why you hear instructors all the time saying, lower leg back, lower leg back. Well, it's not that their pupils are all anatomically challenged. It's the fact that the saddles are made more often than not, certainly here in England, by saddlers who've never been near a horse. Hmm. You know, if you took a freezing cow into Walsall, most of them wouldn't know it wasn't a piebald horse. Yeah. And, you know, I've got lots of good saddler friends up there, and they are starting to look into it a lot more. But the difference it makes is phenomenal, particularly in rising trot, because the stirrup bars being too far forward in rising trot means that it puts the rider behind the movement. And particularly if they're rising to the trot too upright, it completely stops the horse in its tracks. So, you know, there's so much there. For me, it's all about the rider. If you get the rider right, so that they're not impeding the horse, then training is, it just happens, mm. you know? Horses no longer want to resist or evade because you're not doing anything to them that causes them. You know, unlike a dog, they can't cry out in pain. It's the horse's muteness throughout history that has been his downfall. Yep, yep. All right, I think that's certainly a lesson for people to take away with them. Now, Heather, if people yep. um, want to contact you, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, Facebook, obviously, because I've got a big Facebook presence there. Here in the depths of Devon, if I didn't have, I'd be dead in the water. So it's just, you know, Heather Moffat on there, you know, by all means, you know, PM me, email me at, if you could hear this, okay, hm at heather-moffat, M-O-F-F-E-T-T dot -T com. You wouldn't believe the spellings I get, and I won't tell you some of them. <laughs> 
and you can go to my website is um, www.enlightenedequitation.com. Okay. And Heather, the other thing is too that we'll have your details on um, the page at Horse Chats, which will be horsechats.com slash Heather Moffat. Okay, Heather, very good talking to you. Certainly educational and I'm sure there's lots of things that people can take away then, you know, with your direction and guidance. It's been very good. Yeah. I hope to They'd talk to you again sometime to join soon. Join the Facebook group to enlightenedexpectation.com. So, oh, sorry, Enlightened Expectation, just the, the Facebook group. So that, that's quite active as well. So lots of things we can do to help people. Okay. Thank you, Heather. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Glennis. Lovely okay. to talk to you. Okay. Bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 